0: Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 1, Episode The Last, a.k.a. Episode 7, proper, 8 total. We're talking about Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner from the year 1936, and we've discussed it in great detail and in great depth and at great length and at great width and... We the just, height
1: we could work on
0: yeah we could we could work on the height um <laughs> but today, I guess that's what this episode is all about is to to what to what height does this novel soar so uh i guess that's s o a r um so we'll start with that question and then we'll discuss i guess um you know this idea of is this is this the best novel yet written by an American? As William Faulkner claimed it was, uh, which not that you know he's not biased, um, but um, is you know of what we've read of American literature, does that does that ring true or does it does it ring false? Um, and then I think just you know in terms of like, is this a great American novel along the lines of the other great American novels? And we'll kind of do some A B testing there. Um. So that's that. So uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, wife, big news for those of you that don't already know, mother to my upcoming child, December 2020. Uh, we don't know the gender yet, but um, either way, I'm really excited. So uh, Whitney Deal, check in with us for the listener's sake. Check, check. <laughs> I kept doing a check. You know, to see if the volume is working right on these microphones, and she's just getting a kick out of that because she's not an audiophile like I am. So, anyway, I don't ever
1: have to do sound checks. So, when you tell me to do a sound check, I'm like, "What do I say?"
0: <laughs> you can say anything. You can say, you know, check, check one, two, one, two, three. You know, um, you can say "absalom, absalom" if you want to. But uh we, we've talked about the title. We've talked about. The, the, the sentences and the the paragraphs and the prose. We've talked about the narrators. We've talked about the characters about which the narrators speak. We've talked about just, I guess, the plot of the Sutpin family. We've talked about the plot of the Coldfield family. We've talked about the plot of the Compson family. Um, but, but there's so much left to talk about with this novel in, in terms of looking at it as a whole what is its what is its merit? What is its value? Um, is, is this the kind of book that that needs to be taught in schools? Uh, why or why not? So, Whitney, you know, you teach high school. Obviously, this would be a challenging book to teach in high school. But what what about this seems uh, fitting for you know a, a classroom of at least eleventh to twelfth graders? Maybe
1: I could kind of see teaching this. Because I think if students could just let go of their concern about understanding every little detail, they could really engage with and enjoy the story because it's got it's got this drama and excitement to it. Um, students tend to, in my experience, like kind of gothic stories or stories that have this this element of like the extremes of human, passion and human experience. Whereas sometimes the older I get, the more I appreciate stories that are more kind of muted and down to earth and about just normal people living normal lives. Um, But when I was younger, I wanted to read something that was kind of romantic with a capital R, you know, about these extremes of experience and emotion. And I I think this novel is that. And so I, I do think that students could potentially really like it, especially the ones who are fascinated with history, it could give them some perspective on how difficult it is to pin down our history and how we're still making our history as we go to some degree because we shape it so much and we pick out what we want to pay attention to. I think it could be fascinating, but just I think, you know, younger students, not all of them are going to be really invested in studying literature. Whereas if you're teaching like an English major, Course, then those students have all decided that they want to value literature. But when you're teaching, even like an honors or an AP course for high school, some of them are just there because they want to think of themselves as the top students and they just feel kind of obligated to be in that class. And it's harder to sell those kids sometimes on something that's just stylistically experimental and kind of deliberately opaque because they just think why does this writer hate me why does this why is this writer making my life harder unnecessarily
0: why can't I get a perfect score on this
1: yeah why do I understand it the first time the same way they get frustrated when they don't understand a math concept and you know when it has to take a while to sink in and you have to keep working with it. And maybe it takes two or three weeks for you to really like master the concept. It just feels frustrating. Um, and some students I found are uncomfortable with ambiguity and literature is just rife with ambiguity. And then this more than some other things. So,
0: and I think all, you know, all your points are are valid and, and very prescient. Um, I think, especially the idea of, like you said at the beginning of, you know, kind of introducing your your answer to my question, this idea of students want to know all the details of something and be able to like get them all right on quizzes and tests, and you know that that's how they learn uh, how to read. That's how they learn how to write. That's how they learn how to study history. Uh, because I think that that people just have to develop the ability to think abstractly, to think. Um, you know, about complex things in a complex way. And so that's partly why I think so much of reading comprehension is taught at the lower Bloom's lower order Mm -hmm. taxonomy skills um, because you actually have to develop those skills first before you can really develop synthesis and judgment and analysis.
1: As a teacher, it's really hard to evaluate... It's much harder to evaluate whether they're understanding, comprehending literature on the higher levels. It takes much more time. Like, yeah. I've really moved away from giving these very objective assessments on literature because I started realizing why am I testing and quizzing on things that don't even matter to me. Like I don't care if you do remember that he was wearing a blue jacket or something that's just like incredibly objective. And the more complex the literary work, the less there tends to be to cling to in terms of plot. And the things that, I mean, you know, that are just, like, super objective. And the things that are that you could cling to are the things that they could just, like, scan a Spark notes and then come in and have the answer. Right. So I would rather have students come in and write about something that's kind of conceptual and interesting or just, like, complicated in, in the chapter they were supposed to have read. But then I've got to read those and engage them and give feedback. It True. takes a really long time. So trade off it's hard to figure out how to manage it
0: and obviously the investment of time is limited to how much time you can actually invest in your students and and I think that some English teachers you know invest in an anordinate amount of time in their students, and you and I are both among that rank and, and then there's some English teachers that don't because they treat the the, the discipline more like a math class you know math class you know, I guess the math teachers can invest as much time as they want to in teaching someone how to do the concept if they don't get it. But if they do get it, they get it and they move on. It's like there's nothing. I mean, you can't marvel at like, oh, man, 9 times 9 is 81. But did you know but 9 times 9 is 81? Is and, and, I mean, there's, you know, there's something about these, like, codified uh, uh, objective truths at at the science and math level and language too that I think we just internalize and then we know it and then it's I mean I don't remember when I learned nine times nine is 81
1: and you can stop and marvel at the beautiful order and predictability of that right like what a comfort that there are certain things you can cling to in the world that are that way. Um, And some writers give you the illusion that life is that orderly too, you know, because the, the plot ties up in an orderly way or like I think of an Alexander Pope, you know, someone who writes in a way that's so fluid and graceful and... And calm and tone and seems like he has the whole world figured out and he can give you the illusion while you're reading that the whole world is figure out to bull and Faulkner does the opposite. I think he makes it seem like the world is rather out of control and complex and yes overwhelming instead, which is more in a way more suited to how it actually feels to live in the world, especially when you're going through a hard time. Yes. You know, and things aren't just rolling along as, as expected.
0: Well, and, you know, students will always say, "You know, when am I ever going to use calculus?" And I, you know, someone who took calculus and has not used calculus since because I literally did not take a math class in college, and I love math. I don't, you know, why didn't I? But the reason you study calculus is the same reason that you lift heavy weights. If you lift one-pound weights and do a bench press with two one-pound weights in your arms, eventually that will not make any difference. Like eventually you're going to have to move up to five pounds. And, you know, you do not have to be a bodybuilder, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger-sized person to realize there are a lot of benefits to being able to, like, bench press the bar as opposed to little hand weights. It makes
1: you mentally fit the way it makes you physically fit to do things that are hard for your brain to do.
0: And, 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 you know, this metaphor that I'm using with lifting weights, it's like, well, um, you may not have to lift something that's 400 pounds ever in your life, but if you can bench press 400 pounds, my guess is like carrying in that, you know, furniture when you're moving or something like that, that's, that's going to be lightweight baby. But, you know, if you've never carried something heavy, you might throw out your back trying to carry something heavy. And so I'm not saying that, Oh, you know, you're, if you don't if you don't study calculus, there's one day when you will be asked to do a calculus problem and it'll throw out your back. No, but if you don't expose yourself to difficult intellectual uh, pursuits and and challenges at a young age, and I'm talking middle school, high school. What by the time you're in college, or especially if you're after college age the older you get the less you'll want to engage with something complex because you'll want to s- stick to the simple basic you know arithmetic level things and and life is not arithmetic life mm-hmm. is 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 you know multivariable calculus and
1: even more you'll feel like you have to stick to the the simple things of yeah. the of the intellect because you'll feel as if it's been too long since you did a workout
0: yeah and and so you know one of the, one of the first reasons to 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 see the value in this novel is is this novel is the literature equivalent of you know high high concept math or science or, or you know anything and and I think it helps you to read it to understand how complex history is and to understand how complex language is for, for the English language. Like, sometimes we'll think, oh man, Latin is so hard to translate, or, or speaking French is so difficult, you know, com- compared to English. It's like, well, that's because you grew up speaking English. People that grew up speaking French think English is, hard, you know. But but I think that this novel really shows us how much more difficult English can be than it is naturally uh, if put in the minds and mouths of, of people that want to make it difficult. And, and I think there's something about, as we talked about with the last episode, there's something about the sentences and the paragraphs and, and just the, the design of the prose of this novel that feels appropriate for the, d- the design and the difficulty of the structure of the novel, which are both indicative of the complexity of history the complexity of families, the complexity of narrative, um, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I think all of us can be pretty prone to not understanding with a proper humility how little we know until we get into an unfamiliar situation. Like, same way, you can really underestimate how physically fit you could be or how not physically fit you are until you're put in a situation where you really do need to to try to run away from danger or something like that. And right. you're like, oh man, like I, I really don't feel like, or I have to take all the stairs because the elevator is broken or something. Yeah. You know, and then you suddenly are like, whoa, you know, I'm realizing that there's a lot more I could have been doing to be prepared just for like a a, a challenge of life that can come along every once in a while. And yeah. I think it's the same thing with like emotional intelligence um, that yeah. com- comes from reading literature. I mean, literature really can help with emotional intelligence, with understanding history. And when we walk through life thinking, okay, I pretty much understand the people around me Enough. I'm I'm fine. I don't really have to be more introspective than that or more like, you know, prone to like thinking through why people are the way they are because I pretty much get like my little social milieu or if we get to the point where we're like, "I kind of get what history was like and like how people are going to interpret it and why it matters." I'm cool. I'm fine. I don't have to really think about it anymore we'll honestly at some point we'll just get slapped in the face by the fact that there's a whole lot out there that we don't understand about people and about the past and about others emotion emotional lives and I think reading literature just gives you a real kind of like mental and emotional workout to help you stay more fit and agile to deal with those like curveballs that real life will throw you if you open yourself up to like new experiences and new people and new perspectives at all.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in terms of Absalom, Absalom specifically, you know, this is something that that's near and dear to us because we've been pretty much, you know, permanent residents of the South. We've lived as far North as Charlottesville, Virginia, which some people would be like, that's still the South. Well, it's very different than Augusta, Georgia. And Augusta, Georgia is very different than Nashville, Tennessee, which is different than Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is different than Athens, Georgia. And that's where we've lived. And that's where we've lived. Um, and, and, you know, in Waynesboro, Georgia. Um, shout out to Burke County. Um, but I, I think that this novel speaks to America in a way that a lot of novels don't because this is so much more ambitious for what it's accomplishing in its 300 pages than really in any other american novel i've ever read including william faulkner's because it's trying to show us the people you think are these antebellum uh heroes and 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 um you know um uh, beacons of virtue and 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 honor and integrity, and these people that that the the lost cause of the south like like you know made into the statues that are being torn down now um, some of them were virtuous people like i think I think Robert e lee w- was as good as advertising I mean the guy got zero demerits at west point he 's the only person to ever do that, so you 're going to you know try and drag him through the mud, we'll try and go to West Point for four years and get zero demerits, and then you can tell me how evil he was. He had the choice of his armies. I mean, he was he was literally the best general in America, and he could have chose the Union, or he could have chosen his state, which is Virginia, and, and he chose his state. Obviously, that, that's, that's common knowledge now, but just think about, like, he, he could have chosen... a a different side. It's like, it wasn't, uh, he, he didn't have one path. He had two paths and he chose a path.
1: And sometimes it's just difficult to empathize. I mean, I think that's exactly why we're talking about, you know, reading literature, engaging with history is to try to develop empathy instead of hate and Mm -hmm. dismissiveness for other human beings, you know, but this is a man who, maybe he did overemphasize loyalty to his home. Place, yeah. You know, and I think that's just very common. Um, he had to decide between, is my home place, like, my, my state, like, here where I grew up, or is it, like, the whole United States? Yeah. Where I've, like, enlisted in the military, you know, and he, he had to choose between those things, and in his mind, it wasn't necessarily just about choosing between, like, slaveholding and not slaveholding. It was about choosing between, like, your neighbors and your family and stuff. And then these other people, like, this other institution that also meant a lot to you. So it's, like, just having some empathy for that and not just demonizing. Like, we see Rosa demonizing Thomas, something, but then you also see, like, a lot of correctives to that demonization without making him into some sort of, like, Angel figure. It True. just it's just to say it's more it's more complicated than that when you're dealing with human beings. I read this really fascinating statement. I'm just going to throw it in really quickly yeah, yeah. before we move on. I read this really fascinating statement um, that was in relation to um, Benito C- Sereno by Herman Melville, which was something that influenced Faulkner and it's kind of an allegory about America and slavery and the Civil War. In and of itself, it's really interesting, but. Um, it talks about miscegenation, which is, of course, so important in Absalom, Absalom. Right. And it says that Benito Sereno provides substantial evidence that good and evil, generosity and viciousness make all men miscegenated, make everyone and everything gray. And it is saying that, essentially, it's revealing that all human beings are more important than they're a mixture of races. All human beings are a mixture of good and evil. Mm-hmm. All of them. They're not yeah. purely one or the other. And if we can remember that about people from history, it's just yeah. a very important corrective to like simplistic, inaccurate thinking. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and uh, you know, it, it's it's just part of being a young person to not understand the weight of your own sin, the weight of your own evil. Um, and, and, you know, you look at the baby boomers, you know, like, don't trust anyone over 30. Well, they're all set, you know, 60 to 80 now. <laughs> but, you know, the, when people are young, they are likely to look at what came before them and say, well, we weren't alive for this and you mess things up and things stink for us. And, and I get it. If you're a young person right now, it is very hard to be twenty in in twenty twenty, you know. And, and and we we teach people in that age range, uh, you know. I think Whitney and I both have a huge heart for high school and college age kids, because we see how valuable it was for the people that had a heart for us when we were that age, and it wasn't necessarily our parents. You know, it's like to some maybe to some extent it was our parents, but but it was it was you know mentors and and teachers and and you know people at the churches that we went to or maybe even coworkers that that invested in us and and encouraged us and and I think you know we are partly who we are right now because of those people choosing to invest in us and and you know that's that's the thing about being young is you can either you know kind of stop your intellectual growth at 15 16 17 18 and then try and just scream at the world until your lungs collapse. And, and I kid you not, there are people my age, 37, that are still screaming at the world right now. I know someone that's in her 50s that screams at the world. Um, and I won't name her, but, um, but I think that there are just people out there that still have that teen spirit that, 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 that just wants to, to, to decry the world. And, and and I understand that and, and and the world is worth lamenting but it is not worth damning because it's not our place to damn the past and it's not the past place to damn us and it's not the future's place to, to damn us it's 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 that we all exist on a timeline for which this is going to be the past no matter what point 500 years from now will be the past one day and You know, that sense of this novel is about the past, but it's also about the past that never ends. Um, And I think that that's, you know, that's a a mindset that can be a prison, just as we see with Quentin. It can also be something um, that, you know, with with Rosa, I would say it enlivens her. I would say that, that the past never dying is what keeps her alive. Whereas it's what ultimately I think kills Quentin. And and I've said this already several times, but I think this novel is Faulkner, you know, felt like he didn't justify why Quentin killed himself in The Sound of the Fury. And so he needed to write another story that gave us enough understanding to say, Yeah, I get it now. Like I it didn't make sense in *The Sound of Fury*, but now it makes more sense because I have a bigger picture. That goes to this idea of portraiture that we've been talk- talking about throughout. We get a big, uh, multifaceted portrait of Quentin in this novel, and I think that that's one of the strengths of this novel. Is Faulkner didn't just leave his character, you know, drown in in the Charles River in in uh, *The Sound of Fury*. He brought him back. Obviously, he this is set previous to that, but he brought him back because there was more of his story to tell. And I think that that's just it about history. That's why we're going to keep thinking about, you know, whether it be the Civil War, whether it be World War II, whether it be the the, um, the revolutionary time, whether it be the civil rights era. You know, we, we have these kinetic times in history, and then we have these placid times in history. And I think we had a placid time, and we didn't know it, <laughs> And then all of a sudden, it got really kinetic, really quickly, with the the coronavirus and basically the, the the reuptick of of Black Lives Matter with George Floyd, and so, you know, right now the world feels very dynamic, but also very chaotic, and you know this this novel is about the chaos that comes from, you know, one man's actions, like. You know Thomas Sutpen it, it, it is the one who who causes ripples even you know a hundred years after he's born. Here's Quentin sitting with Shreve in their dorm room talking about him, and I think that this novel it it aims to be an epic without being the length of an epic to show readers that it is actually more epic to squeeze in the power of an epic into 300 pages than to stretch it out over a thousand pages um, because really a thousand pages of this would just be too much.
1: I think a lot of great American novel candidates, including this one, and just a lot of um, literature generally, just helps us to think less reductively about other human beings, you know, just to think about them in 3D instead of 2D. Um, and that can include people from the past, um, but also people, you know, just generally yeah. other who are different from us. And I just think that's so important right now because there's a tendency, I think some of us have a tendency to look back toward the past and see those people in two dimensions as being either evil and flat yeah. um, and just kind of like benighted and ignorant or vicious or something like that um or vice versa to, to look at the past and see them as being just heroes you know like larger than life heroes that are bigger than we could ever be like you know some people look really far back into the past to look for that like you know like the roman empire or something like they they look really really f- distantly but th- there's a, either way there's a sense that um we can't fully learn from those people if they're two-dimensional, because we're not two-dimensional, no one we know is two-dimensional, how do we apply it to our lives? And then to apply, like, a purity test is another tendency, like Mm -hmm. where you say, okay, in the past there were these heroes who I think were pure, and then there were these villains who I think were evil, and I'm going to apply that same standard to all the people alive right now. And if I can find anything that they've done that's not pure and good according to my standard, then I'm going to reject that person mm. and, and shut them out, you know. But then on the flip side, if I want to make someone a hero, I have to ignore everything that would add ambiguity to that. And yes. they're both dishonest. Yes.
0: When I was thinking about this idea of, I think when we think about individuals and, and their lives, if we know them, w- w- we are able to think of them three-dimensionally you know whether it's a family member or a friend or significant other or you know a coworker or someone like that but then you put a label on them you know cop black southerner you know liberal conservative you know we 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 have these words that we think are um are barriers like barrier walls we're going to put this fencing around this person and say that's what this person is. And I think that's why it's so easy for people to distance themselves because we know we are complex. Like we, we all know our, com- our own complexities if we're honest with ourselves. But it's very easy to look across the board and see someone who's different from us, either in, you know, political, um, you know, political a- uh, affiliation, race, um, socio-economic class. Uh, occupation, gender, sexuality, religion, anything can be something where you say, I get to be the complex one and you get to be the two-dimensional one. And the reality is everyone is a three-dimensional complex person, whether they're a little baby in the womb or whether they're a 100 years old. And that's because God gives us our dignity. And in this novel, there's this element of, it's almost like, Thomas Sutpen wants to deny that dignity because he wants, he thinks he can get something purer than that, something that's like, like a, um, like a two dimensional, uh, you know, avatar to, to protect him from any, you know, uh, attacks from the side or the back, um, and and I think that that's one of the great lessons to learn from this novel is you can try to control life but life will get the best of you and it may get the best of you you know in in, <laughs> in the very way you were trying to control it like he's trying to get wash jones's daughter granddaughter pregnant to have a, a son and then when he ha- when she has a daughter you know his comments i think it's his comments about the the granddaughter having the having the the daughter rather than the son that get him killed if he had said well, let's try again for a son. I don't think Wash Jones is killing him for that, but he he says, "Well, it's too bad you weren't a mayor. at least you could've had a nice stable mm-hmm. and and just his um his indignity that he shows to his own child is indicative of he doesn't want that dignity on himself either
1: yeah, and he um treats Wash as if he is a two-dimensional caricature who could never be different from how he's seen him be. Like, it's like Wash has always jumped up and run to do whatever I've told him to do, right? He's always seemed subservient to me. How could he ever oppose me or take offense at anything I say? He's like a little puppy dog. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just not true. And when you try to think I can have a design to life and I understand how everyone else will react it's bound to become your Achilles heel because people are too complicated and unpredictable. Like you and I living in the same house together, Adam, you know, are constantly like bumping into each other's complexity because we'll react in a way that the other wasn't expecting or one of us will just be for, for some reason that has nothing to do with the other will be anxious or frustrated or something and then we'll kind of let some of it out and then the other person will be hurt, will be confused. Like, we hurt each other, we confuse each other. And we've put a lot of time into trying to understand each other. So I think that's yeah. just part and parcel of how complicated each human being is. And Thomas Upin thought that he could have a schema, that he could mm-hmm. just lay upon the top of life and control things, and it would turn out just how he wanted. And that hubris... And really naivete and what they call innocence is what yeah. you know what comes back to get him. But it's the innocence of a person who's just simple-minded enough to think he can play God.
0: Yes. And, you know, it, it comes from his misunderstanding of God. I think he thinks of God as some sort of Greek God, like, you know, very, very I guess carnally driven like all the Greek gods are very human seeming you know and he thinks oh well that's you know that's I'm gonna I'm gonna just you know take what I want the way Zeus does um or I'm gonna overthrow the the um the titans you know the way that Zeus does and and it's interesting that we're thinking about that because this this novel does have a lot of like (laughs) attic elements to it. It's very Hellenistic, to throw in yet another Greek-affiliated uh, term. But I think that's part of what Faulkner does. He he tries to infuse his stories with an ancient, in some ways timeless uh, or universal element that that he thinks makes it seem more real. Because if it was just a novel about the Civil War and had no connection to um you know the the David story in the Bible Absalom Absalom comes from David and second Samuel, and so I think if he had if he had understood the God of the Bible more, he might maybe he would have been more humble or maybe he still would have been really proud and 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 wanted to you know be the God of his own world, but he would have understood what that means more and I think that the more you the more you know God, the more you realize that no one no one is like God. No one can be God. No no one has I mean, if you can make the sun shine for one second, then by all means be God. But I'm pretty sure no one in history ever has, ever will be able to do that. And so, you know, till you can, I'm gonna stick with the God that makes it shine. But I think that Sutpin, you know, Whitney was talking about this idea of complex people and living with complex people. I think he doesn't allow people to be complex because he, he's so determined to this juvenile, um, you know, vision that he had. Ever since he's 13, he has said, I will not be sent to the back door again. And it's not just that he wants to take retaliation against the man Whose slave sent him to the back door? It's that he wants. To, I think he wants to take retaliation on the entire system. Now, some theories, as we've discussed, say that Sutpen wants to take retaliation by um, bringing the 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 the, um, the errand boys, so to speak, t- straight in the front door, and and not only letting them in, but letting them be family, and that was his aim with. Charles Bond was, oh, this, this guy that I wouldn't know from Adam shows up at my family's house and needs a place to stay and, and wants to marry my daughter. And I'm like, come on in, you're, you know, y- you're marrying into the royal family. The uh, only thing is, it's his real son. And so there's a really a no-win situation with Charles Bond. And I think that Jim Bond, as we've discussed in some of the other episodes, is in some ways the, the fulfillment of that um that welcoming in but but you could just as easily say that he wanted to destroy the the plantation excuse me the plantation south by um overpowering people like Sutman's hundred miles it's 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 absurd it's 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 kind of laughable except it's believable because this the antebellum south was was you know it, it was it was um domesticated by the brutal and by the 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 the, the soldiers of chance um and that's what Sutpin is and and Faulkner's really trying to dispel this myth of this british gentility coming from you know um you know uh like riding horses on their property in, you know, Devonshire or wherever and and coming over to America and just doing the same thing in, in the southern states. And, of course, that's not at all the truth because, number one, if you were landed gentry in England, you would never come to America. Why? Why would you do that? Like, it's like saying, you know, oh, well, if you're, you know, I don't know, someone really wealthy in America right now, you would, like, move to the rainforest. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you, you couldn't live in the rainforest like you do here. It'd take your whole life to get it even close, and then you'd be you know four thousand miles away from everybody. You know, so this idea of the people that that uh, that developed the South were not these Charles Bond style kind of fancy boy like um, you know uh, elite style people. They were they were rough rugged uh, frontiersmen that, that not only were willing to, um, you know, uh, cheat, uh, Native Americans out of land and things like that, but they were willing to have, you know, chattel slavery with Africans brought to America to be their slaves. And, and, you know, good who, good, good Hugh cold a good example of he freed his slaves as soon as he inherited them. And so, you know, not every black person in the South before the Civil War was still a slave, but the people that were the most, um, you, know, um, you know, tyrannical about slavery were not these good-hearted, soft-spoken, you know, Southern gentlemen. They were these Thomas Sutpins that had a vision, and, you know, maybe that vision was uh, to, to come from nothing and become a Great Gatsby-style Super rich person to get someone's attention. Maybe they were the son of someone who had started the empire, and they wanted to really, you know, expand on it, kind of like Solomon with David in the Old Testament. And some of them, I think, were just um, that they were looking to escape. Like Sutpen, I think he's looking to escape his his origin, you know, and 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 so that those those types of men are the real antebellum southern, you know, quote-unquote heroes that, that Quentin has grown up hearing about, and now he's hearing this real story about Thomas Sutpen, and I think it's, it's clashing with his understanding of who these men in Mississippi were because his grandfather seems to be much more of that, like, genteel southern, you know, um, kind of stereotype, but, but the reality and the stereotype are clashing very uh, violently in this novel, and I think that that's part of its power is the ability to put those two things both on the same page and make you, make you as a reader think about both of them instead of just, you know, like Whitney said, being reductive and kind of reducing the South to, oh, well, the reason that the South, you know, uh, developed it the way it did is because it was all Thomas Sutpen's. And, you know, obviously that's not the case, but it, it's not because it was all good who cold feels either. It's, it took a whole society of the right mix of people, and I'm including slaves in that, because you couldn't, have, you couldn't have tamed the wilderness the way that they did without slavery. And that's not to excuse slavery. It's just to say when we look at things and we say, oh, man, why can't we do that anymore? It's like, be careful what you say. Like, the pyramids in Egypt, oh, man, why can't we just iron something better than that? It's like, well, they had Israelite slaves building them for no pay, you know? So so that idea of, like, looking at architecture or, you know, infrastructure or whatever it is and saying, oh, man, why can't we do that? It's like, well, pay the money, you know, pay the cost. But it, the, the cost is so exorbitant now that it's just easier to to, you know, scrimp and save and, and, and cheap out and, and have a society that looks, you know, <laughs> in Augusta, Georgia, just like a, a, you know, a five mile stretch of, of, you know, corporate, you know, fast food and, and you know, motels and whatnot. It's like that, that's just what a lot of American culture looks like, because we, we don't have the kind of money to, to live the way they did in the antebellum South because we pay people. And they didn't.
1: I think similarly too, you know, you're talking about how that that wealth and leisure and really that what I would call like counterfeiting of like being kind of landed yeah. aristocratic Europeans, that that counterfeit was created on the on the backs of like having people who would work for you for free and, and who you owned. Yeah. I think similarly though, um, If you're going to have a sense that you are elite and that you are at the top of the food pyramid in a competitive system, you have to have someone to look down on. And really kind of like a series of people to look down on, like in subtle gradations. I mean, Mm. that's how the class system worked in, you know, old Europe. And I think that's the, how the class system that was set up in the antebellum south worked as well. And having right. these like underclasses. And yeah. it was it was kind of hard to tell who was where on the social pyramid. Like it seemed like race was an easy way to tell that it was like right on the surface. But as Thomas Sutton realized he was living in worse material conditions than the slaves who worked on plantations. Yeah. And so he felt like there was something that was unfair or off or like his sense of self was like shaken because he yeah. he was shook because <laughs> he realized that like, oh my gosh, I'm white, but like I'm not privileged, I yeah. guess. Like, you know, we've talked a lot about that in our culture right now, but that th- there's like a sort of a, an epiphany in this book where Thomas Upin realizes that he's white, but he's not privileged by his whiteness in terms of like how he lives. Like he's so poor. Um, And he gets to be, like, rejected by, you know, a black man. And so I, I, I say all that to say that, like, I really think that a lot of novels that are kind of quintessential American novels are grappling with this concept of how do I climb the ladder and who do I have to like prove is beneath me in order to do it. There's just this competitiveness yes. at the heart of something about American society, I think. And this novel grapples with that. Even something like Huck Finn, you know, yeah. is kind of like you've got this element of Huck kind of his American dream might look different. Like I think he, rather than looking for like massive power through money He's looking for something more like freedom yeah, and like ease and, and kind of leisure almost, but like freedom especially. Um, I think those things are in conflict and intention in America, I think to some degree in terms yeah. of what is the American dream? Is it like like freedom and kind of independence right. or is it power and money? Right. But either way you know, there's this idea of grappling with like who Who am I, and who do I affiliate with, and who am I better than? And Huck is really like trying to grapple with like, well, my whole life I've been told I'm better than black people, yeah. but here I am having that question for me every day by right. being by getting to know more and more and more about the complexity of this black man in yeah. front of me, and I even think like say, Scarlet Letter. Here's another kind of contender for, like, a great American novel. Yeah. You know, if you're looking back at Puritans who we can just really tend to see as, like, I feel like there, there's a third aspect of the American dream to a degree. It's, like, freedom and independence, but to be, like, spiritually superior to the rest yeah. of the world. And taking these, like, cardboard cutout Puritans and showing this – dynamism and complexity and ambiguity in them showing that they're human beings and yeah. not just black and white like pilgrim figures. So, I don't know, it just seems to me like this holiday of America as a place where we compete with each other. Yeah. <laughs> about like who can have more money and power, about who can have more spiritual purity, about mm-hmm. who can have more um kind of pure freedom to just be who we want to be and not feel, like, tied down to anything or anybody. Yeah. Um, but you have to have someone that you're competing against to, like, prove that you're doing it and that you're better yeah. at it. And a lot of these novels do grapple with, like, com- competition at the heart of what America is and the fact that the more you realize about a person, the more you realize that none of us are beating each other because it's just all way more complicated than that.
0: Right. Well, you can't have it all. Um, You know, freedom is a different thing than autonomy. And I think that that's something that we're learning (laughs) even now uh, with the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or the Capitol Hill Occupied Portion or whatever. They wanted to change it from Chaz to Chop because Chop sounded more impressive. But then anyways, I don't know. If you don't know what Chaz is, that just goes to show you that, you know, you didn't watch Tiger King. I mean, it's like you you look at things that are so omnipresent in culture, and then a month later or two months later, they are gone. I mean, I just was reminded of—this is a tangent off of a tangent off of a tangent, but I was reminded of the Las Vegas shooting that killed 56 people. I had completely forgotten about that. I mean, I just—it's gone from my mind. But that's just it is that I think that we live in a culture that moves so quickly that we really don't have time to think about something being cultural and then it being lasting and then it being somewhat permanent and then it becoming history. And I think this idea of freedom and autonomy, freedom means you can do something and get you know get away with it or you can do something there's no consequence like I have the freedom to I don't know like cut my grass you know well if I live in a a HOA neighborhood I might not have the freedom to not cut my grass
1: and you have to feel kind of free from social criticism to be free like yes I think in a like, if my neighbor is going to come over and be like, you need to cut your grass, they maybe can't make me. But at the same yeah. time, like, it's pretty hard to feel so autonomous or free yes. that you're just like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Most of us do care what somebody thinks. I think there's like an American strain in the American dream that's like, I'm going to get out. I'm not going to be rooted anywhere, so I'm not responsible to anybody, so nobody can hassle me, yeah. and I'm not going to have to do – what anybody says like it's that Janice Joplin lyric freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose Yeah, like there's something to that right you cut off all your roots and your ties and you're just like I'm free now it's lonely but some people would prefer that at least they think they would they prefer yeah. loneliness to having to be so beholden to everybody all yes. the time
0: and that's why I say autonomy is different because autonomy like with the Capitol Hill Autonomous Autonomous Zone. Well, they are declaring their they're autonomous from America. They they're getting America's electricity and water. I mean, these these people don't understand. They don't understand. Like they think they're being autonomous, meaning they have a separate government system. But that's just it is autonomy implies that you have to make decisions that affect anyone under your autonomy. So if it's just you, you're not really free because if I let my grass grow too long, I don't have an HOA telling me I have to cut it. I have to be autonomous enough to say – I need to actually cut my grass like so that it doesn't look like no one lives here so that no one comes and squats here and you know lives here thinking that we don't live here. And so that there's a difference between freedom being you know the, the absence of repercussions or or punishments or whatever versus autonomy meaning you have the you have the ability to institute those repercussions or or punishments either on yourself or those under whom you are governing. And, of course, Thomas Sutpen, I think, is a great example of someone trying to be autonomous. And, you know, we talked about this in uh, take one of this episode. We talked about these different things that make this seem like a great American novel. And I, th- I think it is a great American novel, but... Um, you know the great american novel for example should talk about um the immigrant experience to some extent because america's a nation of immigrants every person that's here that's not native american you know came here from a different land like i'm scotch german whatever else beyond that um but i you know my family's been in america since i mean you know my mom has ancestors that are da- you know she's a daughter of the american revolution so it's like I, i'm i'm codified american but not as much as someone that's Native American. And so this idea of uh, it has to have an immigrant element to it. Well, you've got you know Thomas Sutpen goes to Haiti, and then he comes to America, and of course Charles Bond is the child of that marriage in Haiti, so Charles Bond is an immigrant. And so you've got that. You've also got a rags-to-riches story with Sutpen, and I think maybe to an extent um, Charles Bond as well. You've also got a family story that the the great American novel has to have some element of family. And even The Great Gatsby, which a lot of people would say, wait, that's a family novel. Well, yeah, Tom, uh, not not Tom, Nick and Daisy are cousins. Right. And so there's a, a little strain of family to it, even though it doesn't come across as heavy handedly. Family, but in a way it's it's you know th- the family of George and Myrtle Wilson, the family of Tom and Daisy Buchanan and their little daughter that oh I hope she's a little idiot um but you know maybe she- maybe she'll just i don't know become a great a grand dame, you know, who knows but um but there's that element of family in the novel because you've got, like I said the Sutpins and the Coldfields and the and the compsons, and so There's that. I think every great American novel has to have some... It can't be about every state in America. Like, that's too ambitious. I don't think... I mean, maybe like Forrest Gump covers, you know, the the gamut of America. But I think that part of the great American novel is that it can't be disingenuously sweeping. It has to have a, a, a nucleus. Now, in this novel, I think the nucleus is the antebellum South and the electron cloud stretches not only to 1909, 1910, when this is happening in quote unquote present time, but it actually goes back to, you know, Tidewater, Virginia and and the first settlements in in Jamestown and whatnot. And this idea of, of America starting in 1600 and the slavery that came with it. And and of course, Haiti as well in the West Indies. And then, I think it stretches all the way to the present because it's applicable to you know the 21st century world, um, even though it doesn't have characters living in that moment. It's it it implies that even with Shreve's last comment about the Jim Bonds of the world will 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 become the kings and and rule, you know, and he, of course he, he's being sarcastic, but you know he, he's accurate that like. Jim Bond is still alive at the end of the novel to have more children, whereas Henry isn't Henry Sutman, or Quentin is not going to last much longer either you know so so
1: and so, that our notion of like purity and race mm-hmm. you know that was so important to people all the way through the like mid twentieth century, it was just going to stop being a viable notion by which people could like identify themselves and like claim superiority. Like, you know, if America is going to be about being competitive, then the the idea of the competition being based on race is just untenable. Like I think that was very um, kind of showed a lot of foresight in some ways um, on Shreve's part, just to say that like the world is changing and, We're going to have to. I think America's never been quite sure what we think of as truly virtuous and what we want to like pick our, our leading kind of ruling class mm-hmm. based on. Is it people who have managed to become rich? Is right. it people who have managed to become like military heroes? Right. Is it people who have managed to. I mean, for a while, there was like an easy way to kind of narrow it down to some degree is you could be like, well, okay, it's going to be a white male. So like that narrows the pull down and then it's going to be someone who's educated or it's going to be, you know, we had like right. some ways of narrowing it down, but I think that that is kind of confusing for us as Americans because you see like a Jay J- J- Gatsby figure who manages to make all the money and have all this sh- shrewdness, yeah. you know, in order to to do that, but he's still never going to be accepted into the upper echelons of the elite. He's never going to be respectable. You know, there's just a barrier to entry. But the barrier to entry is not spelled out in America as explicitly as it is most other places that are, you know, kind of like that we might be like emulating culturally. And so I think it's just very confusing. And all these great American novels like tend to be hashing that out to some degree, like who who are going to be the the leaders, the people we follow, the people we respect, the people we. Yeah. You know, how do you get there? And there's just like a constant tension even today. Right. You know, what, what is it that actually like raises someone to a national consciousness and makes them a person worthy of respect? And how can we agree on it? And yeah. we are not agreeing on it at the moment.
0: Well, and who, who is a par- the paragon of America? And, and, and ultimately, that's, a, that's, an, that's an, an unanswerable question. Because we are not a country, we're a continent. I think the sooner people think of America as a continent with states that are united the same way that, like, Europe is the EU right now, the sooner we think of ourselves that way, like, do you know who the leader of the EU is right now? Because I sure don't.
1: And it's impossible to say who's a quintessential European. Right. It's
0: like
1: Europe is way too diverse and Complex for that, and if we could just say, well, so is America,
0: and 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 I think that you know we're we're you know Europe's been around for over two thousand years that they've got a head start on us, and I think that we will eventually find that regionalism is more productive than globalism, and I'm not trying to use that in a like you know he, very heavy handed way, but the idea that America is somehow going to have one uh, homogenous culture. And what, I mean, you know, if, if we had one homogenous culture, there would not be a black lives matter movement because that, that would be implied in the culture. Right. And so that's part of what we're contending with in this very day and age is why don't black people in America feel like their lives matter enough And it's because, it's not because they don't matter at all. They do matter. And, you know, every every person of color has family that cares about them. They have some sort of friend structure or or significant other or something uh, that cares about them. And if they don't have any of those people, there are literally strangers wanting to hand them food and give them a bed to sleep. And, you know, to say that my life doesn't matter is just a lie. But, you know, Quentin gets to the point where he's like, my life doesn't matter. I've got to kill him. You know, it's like it, he doesn't see life mattering outside of these things that matter too much to him. And I think that, you know, we're all guilty of that as individuals. And I think, you know, in, in America, the, what you might call the marginalized people uh, are the people outside of the lines. You know, the inside the lines are the ones that are, you know, kind of following the American dream and, 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 um, and receiving the, 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 the fruits of the harvest of the American dream. And, um, you know, I I think that the American dream has enough fruits to go around, you know? Um, there are some people that don't spread their fruit around because they want to hold, you know, hoard it up for themselves, um, and and I think Thomas Sutpin is one of those people. It's like he he wanted Sutpin's hundred to be his kingdom. And um I think there's just something about that's just something we're gonna have to just face the facts about America. It's like we all wanna be kings. We all want to be autonomous kings that have our own free, <laughs> you know, autonomous zones where can't you know nobody can tell you anything, or to quote Kanye, can't tell me nothing. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of power in that, that thought process that says, no one gets to govern me except for me. And yet you're governed by the laws of nature. You're governed to some extent by God. You know, you can be more governed by him if you choose to be, but uh, to some extent, no one is autonomous. And, uh, you know, to quote Bob Dylan, got to serve somebody. And the sooner we learn that lesson, I think the sooner we stop trying to tame 100 square miles and and set up a lineage and set up, you know, set up a dynasty and have a design and, and it's going to be perfect, there just isn't room in the world for perfection. Like you know, you've, heard, you've heard that phrase, perfect, perfect is the enemy of good. Um, And I think that there's a lot of truth in that because the more you try to control, the more of your energy you're, you're investing into that thing. And if it fails, you don't have the energy to invest in anything else. And Sutpen, you know, bless his heart, he did have the energy to try and start the next lineage because Henry had already killed Bond. Uh, but, you know... Rosa won't have you know won't won't have premarital sex with him, and he's like, well, you know, if we have a boy, I'll marry you. And I mean, you know, he just doesn't have any concept of how offensive that is. He's basically like, let me rape you, and if if it's a boy, then we can call it consensual. And I, I I'll tell you what, I'll do my part. I'll put a ring on it, and you know, you can be queen of something's Hundred.
1: He thinks that being powerful implies he's all powerful and that everyone's just going to sort of bow to his whims and be yeah. pliable to him and he's like surprised or shaken when they're not pliable yeah. and like you know what you were saying about being global and like the kind of just how untenable it is to like live globally i think living globally has been so glorified ever since I mean especially since the internet the advent of the internet it's like oh my gosh like look we can just have a window into the whole world it's beautiful it's beautiful but there's just something that's too overwhelming the way I think trying to like kind of absorb everything about the past of of you know the place where you live is overwhelming to Quentin but there's something overwhelming about trying to like take on and take responsibility for or improve or bear the burden of the whole world. We've yeah. talked about that before, but like our own community, like wherever, whatever city or town you live in and even smaller than that, like whatever workplace you work in or whatever, like school you or your kids are affiliated with or whatever neighborhood you live in has problems and suffering and injustice and beauty yeah. and good things, that's it, enough to occupy you for your whole entire life. Right. And to serve that as a worthy goal. And, like, if I'm always paying attention to what's happening in other parts of the United States, like, if I'm always, like, consumed by what's happening, like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from my own community, then I'm not as likely to really, like, do anything about the conditions on the ground for the people that are actually around me. And I'm also likely to kind of have distorted thinking about my own community because I can't see, I'm like, we must have exactly the same set of problems here as I'm seeing these other people deal with across the country. And so like, I'm just mad. Whereas I think sometimes you get out and get out in your own neighborhood and you see that, some things are better where you live than they are other places and some things are worse. And it's just a specific situation. Um, I just really think, I mean, this is only kind of tangentially related to Absalom Absalom. It is a little maybe because I just think that like someone like Quentin lets himself get too overwhelmed about like everybody's input and problems and like holding everyone to this high, high standard where he wants them to have like good motives and be kind of like pure and, pure hearted and above reproach and it just like crushes him. And sometimes we do the same thing. It's like, I think there's a tendency right now in our culture for people to say like everybody in the world is corrupt and I can't stand it anymore. And it's just
0: yeah, crushing
1: me. Whereas like oftentimes if you can get out and talk to someone in your real life, you realize that they're not totally corrupt or totally good. They're just a complex human. And right. there's some like, something you can really do in having a conversation one-on-one with someone.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that that's, that's what this whole novel is. It's one-on-one conversations. It's Rosa talking to Quentin. It's Shreve and Quentin talking to each other. It's Jason Compson talking to Quentin in the past and Quentin kind of remembering it. Um, it's Jason writing the, the letter to Quentin. And, and of course, it's within those conversations, you've got um, Charles and Henry talking to one another. You've got uh, Thomas up and talking to Quentin's grandfather. You've got, I mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are all of these conversations going on, um, and that's just part of the limitation of being a human being is we don't have that many ways to communicate. We can communicate through body language. We can communicate through verbal language. We can communicate through... Um, music and art and, and, and creative things um, you know there, there are different ways to convey how you feel to another person but it all has to start with honesty and if you're conveying falsehood and lies and, and something that is a facade then that person is never going to know you and you, you won't feel known and I think that that's that's part of what this novel, you know, Shreve is asking this question at the end. Well, why did tell me why do you hate the South? And then Quentin's like, I I don't I don't hate it. And and it's like, I don't know if he's telling the truth or lying at the end. And that's what's so powerful about the the way it ends is it's a very uh, weird ending to, mm. to to just pick a word. It's weird. Um, it's unusual. It's it's in no way. Um, conclusive and
1: it exemplifies how Quentin can't express himself honestly and truly
0: or fully yeah. at least and 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 you know he has expressed himself he said you know I feel like I'm going to be living in this my whole life like you know I, I quoted that on another episode and um I'm sorry I can't remember it word for word but I I do think that's part of what this novel is bringing to us is the power of being true and being honest. And the only way, and I've, you know, I've mentioned this already I'm, I'm mentioning it again, the only way to really outlive the past is to learn how to love it for what it is. It is part of your DNA. It is part of the, the uh, landscape of the ground that you walk on, and the air that you breathe, and, and all of these things. You know, the dust in Rosa Coldfield's house is the dead skin of you know, antebellum people, and, and, and uh, uh, Quentin recognizes that, and Faulkner recognizes that, and, and um, it is not easy to like the past in some ex- you know in some instances. And, and it is not easy uh, to like the present in some instances, and certainly it's not easy to like the prospect of the future, although no one knows perfectly what the future holds. Um, but I, I think that that's something powerful about this novel is it's really marrying these things together because it is most productive as a human being to understand the present is on the scale from past to future and it is not unique. It is not um, autonomous. I'll use that word. Uh, The present is not autonomous. And I I think the sooner, especially young people learn that, um, the sooner they'll just be better at understanding. Like, isn't it sad to think if you're 20 that you're just as hateful of older people as you know, people 30 years ago, people 60 years ago. Like, you're not better at loving as a generation than your grandparents' generation or their grandparents' generation. Now, granted, the people that they hated might have been different. They might have looked different, had different skin color or different, you know, age or, or, or you know, gender or whatever. But ultimately, we are not getting any better at loving because i think you know this novel is is kind of hitting the nail on the head we just can't get over this desire to to conquer and to and and to 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 escape uh and and you know y- you can escape the past by living in the present you know I mean, you can escape what happened last week. Like, I haven't thought about the riots in Minneapolis for the last couple of days because I've been more focused on, like, what's been happening the last couple of days in the news. But that's just a good example of that's the recent past. That's not even, you know, like I said, that's that's still cultural. That's not even history yet. That's, that's, that's still in the cultural consciousness, and it's, it doesn't feel remote enough to be history yet. And, and yet it feels very remote compared to what's happening even this weekend. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's what Absalom Absalom gives to literature that a lot of literature doesn't grapple with is this concept of the power of the past. And, um, you know, Stephen Dedalus says history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake, and I think it's in Ulysses. But, um, it's from one of Jane Joyce's works because Stephen Dedalus said it, but I, I think that this novel is not—it's not necessarily drawing the same metaphor. I think it's saying history is 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 a, is an ocean, and it's great to swim in it, and it's great to fish in it, and it's great to you know look at the wildlife in it, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't live in the ocean. I mean, okay, maybe if you like have a boat. That's got everything you ever need, but you can't live in the ocean forever, right? Even then, you're not living in the ocean; you're living on a boat. And so, that I think that that's what's so powerful about this, and I think that's why Quentin drowns himself. I think it's it's intentional that he drowns himself because he feels like he is drowning in the history of his of of his world. You know, Jefferson, Mississippi, Yatnahpatafa County. Um, and, and he
1: can't it, walk forward. Yeah. Oh. Until you're on the land, like, there's no future you see for yourself because you're just getting, like, tossed around by things that already happened otherwise.
0: And Shreve is doing that, uh, I love that meme of someone's, like, reaching out from the water, they're about to drown, and then someone else's hands come in, and you think they're going to grab them, and they just give them a high five. (laughs) And that's how it feels Shreve is like high-fiving Quentin about like, man, the South is so messed up. Isn't it wild and crazy? I'm going to go back to my normal life now. And Quentin can't. And you know, this novel is, it's just, it's got so many of these elements. And and another element that I was going to mention about, you know, like great American novels, it has veterans in it. You know, it's, it's, it's about the American war. It's about you know the civil war like it's it's the only war that only took place on american soil besides well i guess the american revolution isn't taking place on american soil cuz it's not america until it, we win and so it's taking place on american soil but it's also taking place in a foreign country it's it's got this international vibe because the confederacy is a separate country while the war is going on and so it's got this it's got this element of Um, cosmopolitan like you know going to different states like they go to virginia and they go you know that they're fighting in different states across the south and the you know the lower part of the northeast and i think that you know even like a novel like the salsa rises like jake's a veteran you know greg Gatsby, jay Gatsby and nick are veterans you know there there are novels that that I think are quintessentially American and part of what America is, is a nation of veterans and not just veterans that fought, but families of veterans. Like every person in America, unless they literally just immigrated today has family members who are either in the military or were in the military somewhere, right? Like my grandfathers were in the military, you know, and, and, you know, you may be in the military, or your parents, or children, or whoever, and 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 we we do as a country value our veterans, but I don't think we know how to dignify our ve- veterans. And not only that, but in the Civil War, how do you dignify the Confederate veterans? How do you dignify the Union veterans if you're in if you're in the South? And 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 that is just such a hard thing to do and i think it's you know part of recognizing someone's dignity is saying you have something unique about you that i don't have you know right now the conversation is about race but it could just as easily be about um you know military status or economic status or you know religion it could be about all these different things that make america such a complex place and yet we don't know how to start with dignity first. And that's, you know, for for all of my students that might be listening or might listen one day, you know, my goal as a person, as a teacher, is to show you your dignity the first time I interact with you. And that's why so many of my students commend me on how much I listen and how much I acknowledge them and I answer questions and I let them speak. Like, my classroom is really like a discussion board for my students where I just basically set the parameters and here's what we're going to talk about and Whitney very much is the same way and I think that that's, that's the key to making progress out of the way the past thought about race and I think this, you know, this book very much is about race in America and I think you know you can't have a great American novel without some element of race involved like even The Great Gatsby has like Tom is, like, you know, basically a neo-Nazi. And, you know, you, you have these, you know, characters, like there's a drummer in The Sun Also Rises that's black that may or may not have had sexual relations with Brett Ashley. And, and you know, we talked about Huck Finn. The, the great American novel cannot be so localized to, to people that it has no intersections, and I think that even a novel like O oh Pioneers by Willa Cather, it's like, well, it's about um, Swedish immigrants and Norwegian immigrants and French immigrants and Russian immigrants in Nebraska. And, you know, you might say, well, there's none of that many intersections. It's like, well, it kind of is. And you've got one character that goes to Mexico and comes back. So it's, it's got these elements of uh, you have to interact with people different from you. And, and you know, back then in, in Nebraska these people weren't speaking English. They were speaking Swedish and Norwegian and Russian, and, and and that will make you feel a lot more distant from people than the color of your skin, you know, because if you can't communicate at all, you you feel isolated and foreign, and, and, and you know, you feel like you can't connect. And, you know, this novel, I think, is, is about the present trying to connect to the past and the past being like, nope, you don't get it, you know, like, you know, sh- the past is kind of like sh- shame sending off the present. And 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 it's it's interesting that I think Quentin still wants to try to relate to the past, but he doesn't know how to do it in a healthy way. And that's why, you know, when I say you have to love the past, it's like, well, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a person that you're in a relationship with, whether it's family or romantic or whatever, is to get distance from them, you know, is to just give them some space or maybe it's to, to turn them in for something that they've done wrong, you know? And, um, that doesn't make them not family or lo- someone that you love. It just means they, they're repercussions to their actions and they, they need to you know face consequences and I think the past is facing a lot of consequences right now. But the the consequences cannot reach back to the people that, that committed the acts. They can only reach back to the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those people and great-great-great-grandchildren, et cetera. And so here is this novel about generations, which I think is another like great American novel, you know, element is like you have to have some combination of the past, the present, and the future in a great American novel. It can't be all present, you know, told in present tense. Like, that just, that doesn't seem applicable to everyone. Um, But I think this is the kind of novel that every American could could learn something about America from, particularly the South, because, you know, as I, I think I mentioned in another episode, I think part of this novel is William Faulkner's ambition to show that the South is you know, Shreve makes this comment like, I didn't think 10 people in all of Mississippi even went to college. And he's talking to his roommate at Harvard. Like, Quentin, Quentin is clearly well-educated. He's at Harvard. But there's this element of William Faulkner wanted to show America how, how much creative dignity and in, intellectual dignity and, and um, maybe comprehensive dignity... Uh, the South did have because it was being reduced to, you know, oh, well, the South is, you know, just a bunch of dumb rednecks or whatever. And, and, and of course, you know, if you've ever lived in the South long enough, you know that that's not true. And, and, you know, if you haven't lived in that South, why do you care? And if you've lived in the South and you think that, well, you probably are projecting your own problems onto other people because, believe it or not, a lot of people in the South care about each other And, you know, that I don't know if that can be said as as conclusively for other places, because there's not this sense of shared uh, heritage, you know, in places that are that are not as established in America. And, you know, maybe they will have that more so in coming generations. But like if it's just a bunch of people that have moved someplace, you know, haphazardly, like I'll, I'll give you an example, Hawaii. There's a South Park episode where people are like, oh, we're native Hawaiians. And they're like, we've lived here 12 years. And that, you know, that, that idea of like Hawaii is full of these people that have moved to Hawaii because they love Hawaii. and I, I've been to Hawaii. I like Hawaii a lot. But, but that sense of there's a difference between native Hawaiians and people that just think of themselves as like lifelong Hawaiians because they've lived there most of their adult life. Well, you know to what extent do people in Hawaii feel beholden to one another as, as a people group versus to what extent do they feel beholden to each other because they all like the same thing?
1: Well, it takes time to put down roots in a yeah. place. And um, I think it's just wise to be humble about how well we really understand a place that we don't actually have deep roots in. And right. it's also wise to just not not be too judgmental in general, you know, of of a place that, like, just understanding that, like, it takes a lifetime to begin to understand a a community and begin to understand another person really, really fully. You keep learning, and sometimes there's just a tendency to be really dismissive and say.
0: Yeah.
1: Especially when you first move to a place and everything is, like, striking you new, about that place and you're just like, ugh, I hate this because, you know, I wanted this and I'm getting this and this place is the worst. And to to think that about places and people and just want to, you know, write off, it just requires a lot of humility not to write off people um, as if you've already mastered them and you get them and you yeah. get to just sort of like like conquer them like you said and then just like throw them out as rubbish to, to not do that about people from the past or the present or from any particular like type of place.
0: Yeah and I say that about Hawaii. I'm not trying to knock Hawaiians. Um, I, I think Hawaii is a place where you don't have multi-generations of families who have like you know, conquered the, 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 the wilderness of Hawaii. And so there's this, this, um, this sense of being beholden to those people. Like I want to, I want to keep Hawaii great because my great grandfather helped build this road or help, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people that live in Hawaii have chosen to move to Hawaii. Whereas there are a lot of people in the South that did not choose to be born in the South, you know, whether that's, you know, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, you know anywhere in between i think that there's there's this element of a lot of this this region in the in the nation is is just it, it's a wrestling match with the past whereas it doesn't feel that way even i mean it didn't even feel that way to to this extent in virginia and the virginia is still very much the south relative to the northeast and so there's just a different a different relationship with the past, I think, in any region, and and you know, like we we're saying, it's like America's a continent. like Georgia has a different feel than Tennessee does, you know, and i've I've lived in both for about half my life each. And um, I think that you know there's something about this novel being set in Mississippi. Well, Faulkner basically lived in Mississippi most of his life. The only times he wasn't living there, he was in Hollywood um and briefly in places like like didn't he live in paris?
1: Yeah, and Charlottesville, Virginia.
0: And so of course Charlottesville, Virginia. Um but of course he he didn't live there yet when he was writing this novel. But um it's it feels very honest. You know, it's like he he wrote what he knew and I think, you know, people say that about writing like don't write what you don't know and I I don't think that that that's good. Advice, because then you don't have anything imaginative ever in in life. It's only just, well, here's my like thinly veiled autobiography, and and you know what, like that's great. Thinly veiled autobiographies are, are are great literature, um, but so are things that are imagined. And I think you know this is a combination of history and imagination um, that appeals very much to me as a reader. Like I love you know this idea of like you know a, a made up story with made up characters that might be based on real people but the story itself is not historical it is fictional but the era is historical and the places are historical and i really like that that dynamic between art and reality because it helps me as a reader or a viewer or a listener, or whatever it is, what whatever type of art it is, it helps me to understand myself better. To not just feel like I'm I'm just you know, a, you know, an, an era in history that's just like dates and and figures and and here are the significant points and here's why they were significant. Um, I, I like that life has mystery to it and it has surprise to it and it has. Um, excitement to it, and I, and I like that it has predictability, and that it has um, routine, and, and it has purpose, um, but I think this novel does a really good job of really putting a lot of ambition into one work very concentratedly, you know, the, 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 the concentration of... of um, you know, power in this novel. Is, it's a very potent novel. It does not feel impotent. It feels very alive to read it. And it, and it's, you know, I think it's stifling at points. It's, it's, it's overwhelming at points. Uh, it can be so confusing at points that you're just like, I, I'm kind of just r- riding the horse, you know, through this part and I don't even know where it's going. Um, But I think it's, you know, it, it's something that I, I mentioned this, I think at the beginning of the podcast, uh, as we started the whole thing, you know, I I, think, I was thinking about teaching this, and you know, I asked Whitney about teaching at the high school level, and I was thinking about teaching at the college level, in terms of like teaching the skill of rereading, because you know, in a high school class, you're probably not going to have time to reread, you know, a work because there's just other works you have to get through, and you want to, you know, do well on the AP test or whatever it is, uh, but at the college level you know, there's a little more freedom to, to kind of build your curriculum to to the skills that you best want to develop. And um one of the skills I think is is absolutely necessary in life is the ability to re-read things and get something new out of it every time. And not only get something new, but to get the same value plus some every time. So not just like read it and be like, Oh, I remember the first time I read it, I like this, but I don't now it's like you want to get what's valuable about it the first time. That's part of why we teach how to understand literature and how to read literature and and interpret it and, and analyze it is so that the first time you read something, you're not just like, well, I remember the characters' names and what happened, but that's about it. Like We want, as teachers, for our students to be able to be articulate about themes or symbols or the depths of characters or you know, um, the design or the prose, you know, all these different components that make it literature instead of just a story, you know, fiction. It's like there's a reason that there's a fiction section and a literature section at McKay's (laughs) is because some things are not designed to be, you know, high fashion. Like some things are just like, you know what, we just took a piece of cloth and cut a hole in it and let's call it a shirt and call it a day. It's like that's pretty low effort, you know. You're probably not going to keep that thing forever. It's certainly not going to hold up to the test of time. But if you get something that's really expertly made and, you know, quality products and and, uh, materials and it's made by someone that's a master creator, a master, um, you know, tailor, well then... You have something that you could, la- you know, not only last your lifetime, but you could actually give to your child, and that, you know, that could be a family heirloom. And so, you know, this idea of history is an heirloom in this novel, you know, because Thomas Sutpen, he still has his land, like Sutpen's Hundred still exists, but he has to doesn't he lose a lot of it? Like eventually, he has to either sell it or they just confiscate it. Um, so it's almost like what he has at the end when he dies is, you know, Charles St. Etienne Valerie Bonn, his grandson, and Judith is still alive and Henry's out there somewhere. And 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 um and uh Clyde and and then you know he has this this house, the dark house, but the land it was his once, but it won't be his, you know, when he dies, it, it's not his anymore. And yet it's still called Sutpin's Hundred. So there are these, ele- these contradictions of, you can't take it with you. And yet, you know, the name lives on and, and, you know, he, he's haunted uh, Rosa Coldfield for 43 years. And so there's this, this power dynamic of the past and the present in this novel that's just, I think it's really fascinating. And And I think it's just a really, you know, it's a rich novel that, you know, that's why we did a podcast on it. Like, it was worth talking nine episodes or whatever, eight episodes about, and we probably could talk about it for eight more episodes if we wanted to because there's just so much to talk about with it, and I think Faulkner really just poured his heart and soul into it as a story because he wanted to dignify the South. And I think, you know... To the degree that he could, he did, and yet, it shows the limits. It's like, it's still you know there are a lot of n words in this in this novel. Like it's you know it, it's a violent novel. It's it's a novel that, about someone that wants to commit incest. It's it's got all these like, warts and ugliness and and scars and all these different things, and yet it feels, it it feels real. Like it feels like the South is a real place with real people. And even though Jason Compson says, oh, well, people were simpler and more, you know, bigger. They seemed bigger because they seemed simpler. Um, I think that, you know, attending a close eye to the past doesn't reduce it. It just helps us with our vision. It's like the the closer we we examine it, the more we lose the kind of myth of it and, and the kind of epic sweepingness of it and the more we see the humanity of it. And that's, you know, that's what everybody wants in every era, is to be seen as a human being. And, you know, the South was not perfect at that then. I don't think it's perfect at that now. But it's something that every generation can get better at if they don't write off the generations before that improved it.
1: Yeah, i just say, just to kind of sum up what we've been saying, um, part of having dignity is... Being seen and heard for what you really are and not, you know, kind of boxed in and limited and stereotyped and, you know, put on a shelf. And Mm. um, so Faulkner kind of got inspired by Sherwood Anderson, that he could write about the place where he was from Mm. in all of its kind of complexity and all of the, the ways in which people were dissatisfied and not thriving and then all the things that were also kind of you know like rich and worthwhile about the place and and just have have that ambiguity because it's really more accurate and more dignified to have have that and i think it was freeing for him to realize he could write about his home place it could be worthy of the scrutiny worthy of the attention yeah because any place where human beings congregate is worthy of the attention, and who knows it better than you? You know, who have roots there. So
0: yeah, well, I think that's what's so powerful about Faulkner is, you know, he's from this small town, Oxford, Mississippi. And he, you know, he's he's not from, you know, Memphis. I mean, Memphis is a big city compared to Oxford, and and you know, he's certainly not from New Orleans or, or Atlanta or one of these, you know, megalopolises in the South, uh, Nashville. Um, but but. I think he he brings, you know, he calls it Jefferson, Mississippi. He brings it to life, not as this, like, oh, you get to know every person in the town. I think he brings it to life by showing the the ethos of the town for what it thinks it is versus what it actually is. Um, and that's why I think Sutpen is his, quote-unquote, hero of the novel, um, like he you know, when he would talk about the novel, he would say, oh, well, it's a novel about a man who wanted sons and got, you know, had too many sons, basically. Um, and the title of the novel itself is a reference to a father lamenting the son who killed the other son. And so, even though it is a novel about Thomas Upman, I think it's also a novel about Quentin Compson, as we've said, and, and it's also a novel about the Rosa Coldfields of the South. You know, it's she she's a particular, but I think she's a stand-in you know, more generally for just the, 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 um, widowed, you know, brides, wives, mothers, children, you know, orphans, it's, it, she is the one that won't let go until the story is told so that another generation can take it from her, um, and and she doesn't just tell the story. She actually lives this, like she's the protagonist in in the sense that she goes out to Sutpen's 100 and determines that, that Henry's out there. And so Quentin would never have gone out there if he hadn't been asked to by, by Rosa. And so, you know, in some ways, Quentin is kind of the, the tag-along, like the sidekick, but in a way, it's his story as well because he's the one having to keep it in his mind as, you know, flash memory as opposed to putting it on a hard drive in a book or something like that and and, and just being like, that's it, it's codified, it's done. Um, And I think it's harder to do that. You know, I think it's harder for us as people to use our minds to remember the complexities of every person we ever know. And that's why it's easy for us to just kind of put it on a hard drive and leave it there, like whether that's in our you know Facebook friends list or whether that's like old emails or letters or mixtapes or you know however you you remember someone, it's very easy to kind of be like oh yeah like that's all there is to this person and then you you know forget that they like you know got divorced or that their parent died or that their child has cancer or you know y- you lose that because you 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 two dimensionalize someone. Um, Because it's like that's when you're on the same page as them. You know, the same wavelength, the same common ground. Um, And I think that's part of what this novel is challenging, which is it's very hard to find common ground with people, especially in the past. And yet it's possible if you you just figure out what ground they're walking on and just go to that, it doesn't have to be your ground, but you have to meet them where they are, and, you know, that's the thing is the past is so powerful, and yet it's only as powerful as we let it be, because if we if we don't care, then, you know, who cares what happened two weeks ago? You know, it's like it it can become a non-issue for us, or it can become the primary issue for us. So, you know, this novel is really powerful because it, it forces us to think about our past as Americans and... I think it makes us think about our present as Americans, even though it's told 100 years in the past, um, it's still very relevant for 2020, and that's part of why we picked it. So, uh, Whitney, do you have any concluding thoughts on it?
1: No, I think I'm all thought out for the moment.
0: Yeah. Well, anyways, um, we are looking forward to doing another season this next summer, Lord Mm -hmm. willing. Uh, Whitney, do you already have your pick for next summer? Do you want to... Wet their appetites for for what we'll be d- discussing next summer, or do you still want to think about it?
1: well, I mean, I'm leaning toward the brothers Karamazov, but I don't want to set that in stone because a year's a long time to think about it and for things to change. put
0: it on our i m d b page as announced, but do not put it on there as post production or completed or you know release date you know june twenty twenty one it's it's this the it's the favorite right now for, for what it will be, but, uh, things can change and, you know, (laughs) we'll see how much we want to do a podcast when we have a six month old. But, um, we, we appreciate very much that, that you've listened with us, uh, to us, just chewing the fat about Absalom Absalom for all these hours. Um, and you know, this, this, this was the first time that I noticed Whitney in this, in this class where I visited and saw her talking about this and, you just never know what, what's going to be the, the thing that, you know, sparks your interest in a person. And um, I'm grateful that, you know, Whitney was was so passionate about literature then and is still passionate about it now. And it's just one of the many things that I appreciate about her as my wife. And, um, you know, I don't know if Absalom Absalom will be your love connection, but maybe maybe it will. So um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, and we hope that if you've been reading it for the first time or, Rereading it, or, or, or you've read it so many times you never want to read it again. Uh, we hope you've you've gotten something out of this. We certainly have, and we of course would love to hear any thoughts that you have about our thoughts or just about the novel. Um, and and we're grateful to to have gotten to spend this time in the summer, um, just talking about literature together. So uh, that'll be it for season one of Summer Reading with the Deals. We will hopefully talk to you next summer. Bye bye.